This is the Manips and Sips podcast show, featuring two fellowship-trained, board-certified orthopedic and sports physical therapists. Join us as we talk all things physical therapy, manual therapy, performance, business, education, research, and of course, Sips. Hey everyone, this is the Nips and Sips podcast show featuring me. I'm Dr. Jeremy Boyd and my usual partner in crime over there, Dr. Brandon Cruz. Today we're going to be talking about what's it mean to actually be an evidence-based practitioner or a clinician. Uh, There's a lot of debate about that where we go full evidence versus blending things, experience and patient preferences. But before we get too much into it, Brandon, how's it going? Going well, Jay. Uh, Happy to do this episode, be here with you. Uh, I love this this topic we're going to do today, I actually did a, a IG live, a short mini one uh, about a week ago or so um, on this. Actually, by the time this podcast airs, it'll probably be a few months back. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, controversy around this uh, misunderstanding, um, you know, really clinicians only getting a, a piece of the puzzle and, and things like that, um, you know, especially when it comes to social media and I think as leaders in the field, as uh, two clinicians who uh, not have only done the business side, we have ta- uh, climbed the um, you know, top of the clinical mountain, at least in certifications. And I say that with air quotes for you people listening, obviously, um, you know, certs don't mean anything, but, you know, we have a, you know, we have our fellowships and, and that is a rigorous uh, program or criteria to, uh, to finish. And, you know, one of the big things um, you know, in a mission statement for becoming a fellow uh, is not only evidence-based practicing, but becoming a leader in our profession. So uh, I think, you know, hopefully Jeremy and I are uh, doing a good job with that. Uh, but yeah, that, that leads us into our, uh, our drinks, man. What do you got, Jay? Um, so today I got uh, a beer from a patient. So very nice. Uh, Jean Marie, this is shout out to you. I doubt you listen, but shout out to you. She's, she, I love her because she busts Justin's balls pretty regularly at the clinic. So she automatically comes one of my favorites. Um, it's mama's table. I have no idea what it is. This is, I guess, a kind of a small crowler version of it. Uh, it's Backwards Flag, which is one of my favorite breweries of all time. Uh, a military or veteran owned up in Forked River, which I went to many years ago in the very early start of my brewery. Uh, I guess love it there. But Mama's Table, a shout out to my mom. This is kind of uh, related to sort of things. Of, uh, she always said, uh, whatever you do, be the be the best at it, you know, whether it's flipping burgers or eventually, I guess, being a PT, she's like, try to be the best at it. Um, so I think that's a lot of what, you know, trying to be an evidence-based practitioner really is, is it, you know, what's the best way to be the best at what you do in a sense, but so shout out mom. I'll let you know my score. Brandon, what about you? You have what looks to be a pretty awesome bottle um, there. Uh, yeah, so let's, yes, let's I hear. Do. I have... Drum roll, I guess, here. Oh, so sorry. Uh, all right. No, it's all that. good. Clase Azul Reposado. Uh, I'm going to pay homage to uh, Mike De La Cruz, former intern, uh, absolute just stud uh, in the clinic and in the weight room. Uh, really, you know, d- 
did an awesome job with with um, his affiliation. He's going to be a, a stud PT. I, I'd love to have him on. I told him I'm hiring you already, so he has no choice in the matter. Um, <laughs> is stud in the weight room too. Uh, we call him Baby Rock, um, and uh, um, he. Uh, a lot of people think he looks like my cousin too. So he he's gotten a name Primo as well. So quite quite a few names, but he went all out on his last day. Got me this lovely bottle of uh, Class Azul, wonderful tequila. If you guys haven't had it, um, a little sweet at the end there. So Mike, I know you've been waiting for this moment. So bask in uh, bask in your glory, bask in the the ambiance here. Cheers to you, brother. Cheers. That's that's smooth right there. So he, he's uh, he's been um, huh? he's been asking me, dude, when are you gonna do it? When are you gonna have my drink on your show? I'm waiting, I'm waiting. So I said, hey, you know, I'll pump your brakes, yeah, yeah, pump your brakes, and get you on. <laughs> you get so. a lot of flack for that. Uh, oh yeah, if they know, it's like they give it to me and they want it the next episode. Yeah, I'm like, like uh, you know, them, hey, you know, like... what you're hearing is pre-recorded or recorded and it has to be put out. You know, yada yada. So I'm like. You'll, you'll get there. Yeah. No, I typically with the beers, but I don't get too much flack for it. Maybe Pat just gave me some, he just wrapped up. Um, and he's just like, listen, you can't have this until unless it's, uh, for the actual, uh, podcast, but they're like barrel aged, um, style ones. So when they're big, maybe, uh, like, I think they're slightly bigger than a, a typical can and they're like, 13 14 percent they're like barley wine style beers or porter or like barrel uh bourbon barrel aged stuff um so i mean not unless we're doing one at like six o'clock at night i'm gonna be pretty wrecked for the rest of the day if i put one of those bad boys down because you can't just cap it it's once you open it you're gonna have to you don't want to waste that that big can that's like what 32 ounces or something that we're gonna have real big ones like a crowler I don't know what it was. Um, it was that uh that blonde porter you got me. It's like a thick freaking. Oh yeah, yeah. so that's a crowler, right? Yeah. So yeah, you you... To, I need to have that. That's definitely an episode. We might have to do a night or a weekend episode and shoot like two or three. Oh yeah. Um, be, to finish that, and then you could have your your uh your drinks you're talking yeah. about. But yeah, I, I take the flack as a good thing. You know, they're, they're excited. They got me, you know, whatever uh, drink they got me. They want me to share it. They're waiting for their shout out and pay homage. So I get it. I love it. Um, keep it coming. So, all right, let's get uh, enough, enough of the ranting here. Uh, we'll jump into the episode. Uh, yeah. What's up? I got to get my rating. This is an excellent beer. A pumpkin and yam beer. I had to look it up. Oh. I am going to give an... And nine, that's how that's I all time. The nine all time. Point, which may be the highest all time. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna give it a nine because uh, it's that good. It, it like literally took me back. It's got like a I don't know a touch of cinnamon into it, uh, but excellent beer. So is, going back, is it like to a it, pumpkin pie beer? Huh? Is it I don't like know. I didn't want to look up too much of it. I don't want to be distracted. But I was first just gonna rate it, but then I was like, "Damn, what is this?" And I had to like type it in and find it on Untapped, um, which apparently didn't get that high of ratings as much as I would give it. But you know, that's just yeah, that's just me. Uh, I, I go against the grain a lot in life, but I never had a yam beer, so I thought it was I thought it was really good. So kudos to Backwards Flag. You have the highest rating thus far. You know what? I'm going to go on and say whatever you just said, right? Going against the green life. Here's a little little tidbit. 
and as I guess a little oxymoron because I'm giving advice that you would follow, but I'm saying go against the grain with Jeremy. You want to get ahead in life. You want to, um, you know, break the herd, start doing opposite of what most people are doing. You're going to be looked upon weird. People are going to question you. What are you doing? Why aren't you out, you know, doing X, Y, Z. If you're doing opposite, if you're getting questioned, um, you're, you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. A, lot, just a lot of people don't see it, man. So, uh, Great, great words, Jeremy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, but yeah, hopefully we're doing that. I think we are, um, especially with our clinical practice. And uh, I guess speaking of which, um, because I know we've done some things that people have found pretty interesting or different, um, you know, especially in the scope of manual therapy. Yeah. Um, But um, yeah, what what would you say is, uh, I guess, your uh, basic interpretation of evidence-based practitioner or, or take us off on this one? Well, that has changed for me. I, I will be honest that, I mean, from entry level where you're taught it's a meta-analysis, randomized controlled trials, systematic reviews, we should only follow the top of Sackett's pyramid that he creates, right? Mm-hmm. Then it kind of evolved to reading the evidence and following just CPRs and CPGs like they're, they're uh, God's word. And now, uh, you know, I take everything with a grain of salt. And I rarely look at randomized control trials and meta-analysis. They don't really mean anything to me. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually, if you understand what they're actually looking for, you understand you probably shouldn't follow them um, as God's word when it comes to your interventions to a, a patient. We'll get into that a little later. Uh, so my, my um, I guess, meaning and definition ha- has evolved over time. I think like anything else with experience and then you, develop what kind of works and you get your own pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one thing that has always stood out to me since I read it, uh, which was uh, early on in fellowship. So it was early, late 17, early 18, uh, was Phil Sizer's article. And and, uh, I always reference this article. I've probably referenced it many times on this show. We talk about it in our Mm -hmm. courses. Uh, We talk about it on our mentorship calls and things like that. And to quote him, you know, evidence-based practice was originally developed to increase the use of epidemiology and stats in clinical practice. It was never intended to de-emphasize the uh, clinician's expertise, patient biology, patient values, and beliefs. Mm-hmm. Right? I think we've gone away from that. Yeah. And we've also integrated now in the, the realm of physical therapy, biopsychosocial model. Mm-hmm. But everyone, or not everyone, but a lot of people are, you know, getting rid of that bio and just focusing on that psychosocial model. Mm-hmm. And then that leads to a hands-off approach. Obviously, we're manual therapists, so we have a bias towards manual therapy, but it also has its place in time. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different layers to this conversation. And I obviously just kind of went into that and touched upon a, a lot of different things. But before I continue, how is your um, experience uh, with evidence-based practice? How has that evolved? And what does it mean to you today? Mm-hmm. I mean, initially, um, when I first came out of school, um, I don't know, I guess I was so resistant to research. That was my least favorite class, which now has completely changed. I'm actually doing research with my research professor, um, that's Stockton. Shout out to Mary Lou, who's amazing. Mary Lou Galantino is an amazing uh, contributor to our uh, profession. I believe she is a FAPTA. Uh, that's F-A-P-T-A. Uh, which is only given out to very the, the truest movers and shakers of the entire profession. So whether it's oncology, uh, orthopedics, such and so forth. Um, 
I was just more worried about like the bread and butter at the time. So yeah, we got exposed to it in, in class, but um, it was more like, what can I figure out on my own earlier? Um, and I just take me, take what I can get from PT school and just apply it. That was, that was my extent of things. Um, and then unfortunately, I mean, my outcomes weren't as good and went to residency and started really giving us articles. Cause I would be honest, mostly what I read, I read some stuff outside of things in PT school, but it was mostly the lectures and here and there articles, but it wasn't until residency where articles were given and you're, you know, challenged on them and you had to put your viewpoints on them. That's really kind of finally instilled the idea of evidence-based practice and I definitely went probably um, to ham on that, uh, where I had to have my, you know, rationale or my way put into my plan of care or my clinical decision making had to have purely something that was backed up by evidence. Um, a lot of eccentric loading for like my strains and that sort of stuff, um, or like Achilles tendinopathies and um, all those sort of things. And it would didn't let me waver as much as I, as I could. I mean, I, obviously as people weren't getting all the way there, I'd tweak some things. Um, but as I continued to evolve and start to really understand that, you know, it's that whole blend of, especially the patient experience, obviously my um, experience as a clinician is huge. Um, but once you start to understand that there's no research to ever replicate someone's personal experience that that true end of one um there's nothing that's going to be able to say like this one is exactly for you unless the research article was they were involved with it you know a couple years beforehand um you know that once you start to really understand that that's when you really start to need to look at things of that whole blend that you were discussing um and i when i was picking my fellowship i remember me and you were talking to toko of IAR and he came in and he was saying we're more of an evidence informed uh, uh, type of uh, fellowship, which at first, like, I was like, no, that's not really my thing. I'm EBP. That's why I got in residency. We're heavy on, on the research. Uh, but you know, him explaining his rationale of things of like, yeah, you can go in with the research and that sort of stuff. And it's not succeeding. Someone's just going to go off to the next person. Uh, especially your athletic population. Uh, so that hit home with me and they definitely implement uh, evidence and research into their things, but they're looking at it from a, what, you know, they experience as, you know, clinicians of 10, 20 years in the sports realm. So um, that really, really, you know, hit home for me. Um, and um, yeah, it's really, truly, I think, you know, for someone who, as me, who's played around with a lot of different I guess, methodologies in physical therapy, um, where I've had a period where I was kind of hands-offish. Uh, I had a, you know, listening to previous episodes, I had a overkill of pain science. Um, I had a overkill of eccentric loading. I had a isometric phase. Um, I've had all these phases, not to say I just tried a new flavor of the month, but I kind of sort of did at one point where I want to see was effective. And when you really start to realize it is, you know, treat the, the person and implement all these different things, um, you know, that's when you have the best outcomes. Um, and a lot of that isn't, you know, found in the literature. 
Um, you can't find stuff of like, you know, a patient that was, you know, beaten as a kid found, uh, you know, a spouse that does it and, you know, the impact that has on them in their, you know, in their therapies and that sort of stuff. Um, or go diving into the um, certain things I see of like ACLs of, you know, previous, you know, back pains or episodes, then a lot of them have ACL tears. Is that something related? Is that something I need to treat? Well, there's not a lot of research into it. Um, but I know when I start to treat, they have, they seem to respond better than less pain. So um, that's kind of my evolution, which was a little bit long winded, but um, yeah, hopefully that made sense to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. And it's all true. I, I think uh, one of the bigger things with that is tying together multiple experience, multiple experiences, whether that's you know, what you've experienced as a person or through your um, growth and evolution as a person, sports, education, things like that, um, your patients experience, their beliefs, what the research says. And when it comes to the research says, it's not just pointing to one or two articles or citing one or two articles. I mean, that's easy, but being able to take articles or read an article and read multiple articles and see where the overlapping or the commonality is and also the differences are. So, you know, because an article is going to have, especially a randomized control trial, right? It's going to have rigid constraints on it, right? And that's to make the internal validity better, right? But we don't practice in a perfect ideal world, right? There's a lot of other factors. So you need to be able to take different parts of, I'll say, research and be able to find not necessarily the holes, but if one study looks at one thing and another study looks at another thing, well, where are the overlapping components? Mm -hmm. Not only that, now take that with this patient that may look like three other patients that you've had and see what are the commonalities there and what are the differences there? Mm -hmm. And then also taking your own bias and own experiences and own skill set and own training, analyzing, synthesizing that reflecting on that, reflecting on all three, and then somehow melding it to apply an intervention to hopefully yield an outcome. Mm -hmm. I think that everything is too much in silo. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's PTA in a nutshell. We're, we're a siloed profession. It's this camp, it's this camp, it's that camp, it's this specialty, it's that specialty. Like, I don't think we come together enough as a profession. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it shows in the way things are synthesized and the arguments that are had. I mean, we, we talked about on this show, two heavyweights and Adam Minkins and Chad Cook arguing about what's the more superior intervention when in actually, you know, both are probably good. Depends when you're using it, how you're using it, you know, who you're using it to at what point in, in time. Uh, you're using it. I think part of evidence-based practice goes into clinical reasoning, clinical decision-making. Reasoning needs to not be linear. And I think too many therapists are linear in their thought process. Uh, you have patient X, they present what Y symptoms. I'm going to look at, you know, Z research, and then I'm going to implement that. And that should work. Instead of understanding that all this stuff is dynamic and a patient's presentation is dynamic and the response to treatment is dynamic. And what you decide to follow up with needs to be able to kind of change on the fly. Um, you know, so you and I don't treat to pathologies anymore. 
And a lot of PTs are stuck in pathology. I think that's the uh, barrier in evidence-based practice. While the evidence says this for this type of pathology. Mm-hmm. Well, it also says to look at impairments and also says treat the po- patient. And also, you know, if you look at the B, uh, biopsychosocial model, there's many spokes coming off of that patient centered care, mm-hmm. right? So we can't just look at, you know, one or two things and then call it evidence-based practice, you know, for, for the therapists out there that are, you know, anti-manual therapy or pro uh, pain science, you know, great that you're, you're harnessing those skills, but if you're just doing one thing, you're, you're, you know, missing and alienating uh, so many other facets that can help aid, uh, you know, in your treatment of, of patients. And that becomes evidence-based practice. This conversation is evidence-based practice. You mm-hmm. know, the conversations that you have with your peers in the clinic on a podcast, listening to a podcast, going through uh, some type of program, you know, is all f- forming and shaping the way you think, the way you reason, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that should be included in an evidence-based practice as well. I, I love that. I think that thought process of, you know, just conversation amongst uh, clinicians is evidence-based practice. Um, I had some great mentors where a lot of it wasn't really, as I was currently treating someone, it was the conversations afterwards. Uh, conversations where I was challenged or brought up some ideas to make me better, um, which is awesome. I, uh, we had a, or Brandon had a conversation with a PT, uh, which we'll not name on the show, but um, he mentioned that he has what, six, seven uh, clinicians at his place and mentioned that his out, their outcomes for a certain thing was good enough or was always good, uh, good enough. And I've always, I've mentioned it, probably mentioned on the show is, you know, it should never be good enough. Uh, you should always strive for more. You should always um, leave a percent of your practice or your session with a person for some sort of something that may potentially be new. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Sometimes, cons- you know, consistency is key, but, you know, you're looking for a way to get that person better fast, whether that's, you know, loading them a little bit quicker or more strategically um, because loading them too quick may irritate some things so more strategically um, playing around with your manual therapy we've talked on the show that um, and god if we really uh, were able to put out a lot of research you know we'd have you know probably 20 techniques between me and brandon uh, with our own names by as a boy maneuver boy technique the cruise crack you know um, things that we've played around with not just for obviously we don't do it and publish it for the sake of our own names but for the sakes of our patients getting better it's you know trying to find you know the quickest fastest option um i think that's where a lot of the magic happens and i think that's really you know there's no evidence to support those sort of things um but you're searching for improved evidence with yourself you know you know in you always want to reflect. I always take you know, some time in the year to look at my previous notes and what I did during you know the year, what I used as interventions and that sort of stuff, or even examination techniques. And I can start to see my only my evolution on a year by year basis. Um, so you know that that in itself is you know you're your own case study as a clinician. You know reflect on these sort of things and that becomes your evidence and hell you can run statistics on it i mean we had to do it for residency and that sort of stuff um fellowship and everything like that where you know 
take people of the same pathologies, or if you want to label it like that, um, I full wholeheartedly agree with Brandon. I don't treat people on pathologies. I treat based off of areas and impairments, and I've had a lot more better outcomes in that. And also on a side tangent that think about how limited your research is because a lot of the inclusion criteria is based off of somebody's diagnosis. So it's a pathoanatomical diagnosis, which a lot of the times is incorrect. These diagnoses were made, you know, God knows how long ago, um, you know, Sinan Larson's, Oshkosh Schlatter's, all these sort of things were made by guys, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 80 years ago. Um, But, you know, going back to us and it's like, you know, try and categorize them. You know, here's my knees, let's say anterior knee pain. Um, Here's my uh, Achilles uh, pain areas. Here's my plantar fascia or uh, dorsum of the foot um, or plantar aspect of the foot pains and start to track how long is it taking you to, you know, get them better? What is their length of stay? Um, So and if you want to use outcome measures, by all means, you as outcome measures and allow that to be part of your evidence, um, you know, of you trying to get those numbers better because um, numbers don't lie uh, to some degree. Um, so, you know, use that as a way to self-work on your evidence in a sense. Um, ideally, hopefully the way you do it and get faster is incorporating some research uh, bouncing ideas off of, you know, mentors and other clinicians, and then just really listening to patients. Um, they'll give you, you know, if you're asking them, they'll tell you which intervention is helping them the most, whether it's a home exercise program. I know initially when I first was giving out HEPs, uh, one was good, two or three would piss them off, which was in the intention um oh maybe not two or three maybe in certain cases so i'm like all right well we definitely want to do the one get rid of the two or three and now it's you know all the exercises i give for you know not aggravating things and only making them better and that's from a lot from listening to patients what were the ones that have the you know highest reward and lowest risk for that particular impairment um, so yeah, definitely do a lot of self-reflection. Again, I, I believe is a form of evidence, especially a way to uh, enhance clinician experience. Yeah, um, self-reflection. I think in that, you know, also listening or, or following people, podcasts, whatever the case may be, that don't necessarily align with your your views, because chances are they're going to say something. Maybe it's not everything, but something that you you agree with or maybe makes you think differently. You know, if you're just totally tunnel visioned uh, and, and biasing yourself because all you listen to or follow or, or read is, is things that you agree with and not looking at the, the other side of the coin, um, you know, that's a problem. If too many PTs tend to just read the abstracts or jump to the conclusion and not read actually what's going on. I get it. Nobody likes to read um, you know, articles, but, you know, that's partly, you know, partly what we need to do to become evidence-based practitioners. And if you're not going to do that, well, then you need to listen to the different, um, you know, facets out there. Uh, I would say, yeah, evidence-based practice takes, you know, it does take thought, it takes discipline, um, to learn and to integrate, but when you're able to do it, it becomes easier and, and you become a much more, uh, seasoned, um, an effective clinician. 
and it's more fulfilling. Like we, we talk about burnout all the time and we say, is it, you know, based off of productivity and numbers, I think it's, if you're seeing, let's say something outrageous, you're seeing 50 people a day, um, just working like a workhorse, but every single one of them was making excellent progress. They're super happy with you. You'd probably wouldn't feel too burnt out. I'd guess maybe the paperwork would probably burn you out to a degree, but um, you know, if you're doing these sort of things and you know, you'll get excited about it too. Like I get excited. I was like, oh, I read something case study. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, whether it's a diagnostic one, like finding some, you know, I think the, the JSPT case studies uh, like resident cases where they're pulling up some, obscure you know crazy diagnosis and that sort of stuff um i'm sure like you know i've had those cases where i was one who found something that was not really maybe in the scope of our practice whether it's cancer um you know spina not spina but if it uh equina those sort of things when you're one that finds that you know it sucks for that individual but the one that if you're fine you're like damn that was pretty damn cool wasn't it um, or from a, you know, a treatment standpoint, I did something or I played around with it. I saw how I did things with Mary. I applied at the gym and tweaked it a little bit and boom, he's like 90% better in the first session. That's going to only fuel you more one about your job in general, but to, to further go down that rabbit hole of, you know, what we believe is evidence-based practice. Um, so you know, do it for yourself in a sense, be a little bit greedy. And I mean, you know, believe me, you'll, you'll find more, more joy as you do it for sure. Again, I mentioned, I was research was not my favorite class in PT school. I did not really enjoy it very much. And now, um, whether it's case study presentations that me and Brandon do all the time. Um, now we're getting more and more advanced and hopefully developing some algorithm stuff to help out, you know, examinations. Um, so that'd be something I never, never in a million billion years that I thought I was going to enjoy. But now once you get involved in the process and see the impact it can have, it, it really just fuels you to do it. So, you know, keep all that in mind. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, we've talked about this next point as well. I mean, being able to, to elevate our understanding and our applicability of evidence price, evidence-based practice, what it is, what it isn't, chances are it's probably, you know, some form of, of everything we're talking about is, you know, we're a doctor profession now. Uh, more PTs need to start acting like it. More PTs need to understand what that really means uh, and, you know, not just become a cog in a wheel, but take on that onus and ownership of this is my patient. I'm not going to rely on somebody else unless I need to refer them out, but to, you know, if somebody's coming to you for pain, and they have pain when they're squatting and they want to go back to their trainer or gym, uh, don't just leave it up to their, their trainer to assume that they're going to do it right. They're in your care for a reason. That patient becomes yours. Uh, and granted, you know, you need to worry about referrals and building relationships and things like that, but that person is under your care. Um, you know, so we need to be able to rule things out, understand red flags, not be scared or nervous uh, that something else might be going on and just refer them out to a physician when, especially when we have the tools and capability to screen out or at least identify potential red flags. 
uh, and you know we teach um, you know a lot of courses uh, you know throughout the year we hear a lot of different stories and it's 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 unfortunate I think it's sad that you get to a, a case where you could definitely be helping somebody and we're not doing it because we're nervous something else might be going on mm -hmm. well what are those other things you're thinking of chances are we have the um, the tools or at least we've been training the skill set to perform certain screens um, and rule out red flags to then understand, hey, is this patient at high risk? Is this patient at lower risk? What can I do? You know, is this a treat? Is this a treat and refer? Is this just a refer? Um, and I think some of that and a lot of that comes from the evidence, because if you don't know the evidence, if you're not reading the articles, you're not taking that time. You're just going to be another therapist. You're going to you're bringing a profession back. We're becoming technicians again, and you're just going to keep referring out. And now you lose that patient, and you didn't advocate for yourself or the profession as well. Yep. And then that leaves a unfortunate stain on the profession for those particular individuals. You know, we give up too quick. We don't try things. We don't read up things. Um, you know, one of the first questions I ask anytime a student's struggling um, with a particular client or anything like that, I'm like, did you look anything up for this? Um, you know, yes, I'm here to mentor you and give you some you know, feedback and that sort of stuff. And I'll give you some stuff that I think would help. But I want to see that you're doing it first. You know, that should be the mentality that we have. It shouldn't be like, oh, the patient's not getting better. All right, let's just keep treating them for another two weeks or let's send them back to the orthos or some, whatever it may be. Uh, and the patients aren't getting better. And then, you know, because you've kind of consistently done the same thing, you didn't change things, you didn't ask for advice and all that sort of stuff. And that patient uh, either gives up, ends up having a costly surgery or worse starts getting into uh, opioids or anything like that. They're going to remember that. I was like, well, I tried physical therapy for like four months, three months. I had a patient recently who was doing PT for two years um, and we did a, a couple of things. And by the end of it, she was like, I feel amazing. Um, so two years, two years of going on PT, whether I assume it was on and off, but still, um, you know, you, you can only beat at that horse so much, you know, trying to level up, evolve. And, um, you know, you know, do it for the sake of the profession, you know, we, so many of us bitch, uh, as a profession, like, oh, we don't get paid that much and this and that we don't get respected that much. Well, cause we have people who aren't getting the job done. If you're not getting the job done and you're seeing people three times a week for four weeks and no change happens whatsoever, do we really deserve to get paid more? I don't think so. Um, so really, you know, I think it's, a whole profession needs to really kind of push themselves to really become the autonomous, the alpha of treating neuromusculoskeletal issues. Uh, and then, sorry for the other scopes of physical therapy, oncology, and uh, more neurobase, cardio, you mm -hmm. guys as well. Um, but obviously, a lot of what we're talking about is the, the ortho sports realm. But um, yeah, I think that's that's really what we need to do. Um, I mean, it's really not, it's, it's a time commitment, um, uh, but it's probably really not as much as you think it is. Once you start becoming, making that part of your regular life, it's really not that bad at all. Again, a lot of what I do, 
uh brandon you saw what's on my uh in my in my bathroom mm-hmm. I, have, I have pt books there uh, i have sometimes gsbts uh i have some other articles so you know do it there um hell everyone brings their phone into the bathroom anyways so i try not to that's why there's books instead you know make it make uh do a two for one while you're doing number two so. there you go there it is um well i guess honestly there's no following up that i guess we'll, we'll sign up with those those pearls those pearls of wisdom there but uh, yeah the decent evidence-based practitioner while you're dropping a deuce beautiful that's what i'll yourself. name this uh one but um all right great well right. um awesome episode hopefully you guys gain some things if you have any questions comments concerns or if you're seeking any mentorship of any sorts feel free to reach out to us uh, there'll be some closing uh, remarks with our, uh, was it intro? That's uh, what you called it once, Brandon. Um, sure. I don't even know. Anymore. It's not an intro. It's something that happens at the Out- Outro? Outro. Okay. There you go. Outro. So we got one of those now. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. And uh, I guess, cheers. Cheers, guys. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Nips and Sips. If you liked what you listened to, please follow and subscribe to us on all major social media and podcast platforms. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts if you enjoyed the show. Interested in one of our courses? Go to www.iosmt.com. Interested in business and private practice mentorship and advice? Visit us at therehabcoaches.com. As always, feel free to reach out to us If you have any questions or recommendations, whether that be clinical or SIPs, at Manips and SIPs, at The Decent Doctor, and at Think Like a Fellow. Thanks for tuning in, and cheers, everyone.